I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is Owen O'Kane. Owen is a psychotherapist and author of the globally acclaimed Sunday Times bestseller book, 10 to Zen. Owen has over 25 years experience in physical and mental health. He was a former mental health clinical lead in the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK. And he now runs a successful private practice in London. He's a well-known speaker and a regular contributor to the press and media, and is also a script advisor for the BBC drama on psychological uh, matters. Uh, His new book, 10 Times Happier, is available today, and it's something that I would recommend you read, but we're going to hopefully discuss quite a bit of it in this podcast conversation. I hope you'll enjoy this. I've been really looking forward to it. Owen O'Kane. Before we started recording, we, we had this bit of, a, of technical challenges, right? This is just one of a million things that happen in everyday life that stress us and make us very unhappy. And yet you come out to the world with this very bold, very, very bold statement saying 10 times happier, which I have, I have to tell you, I love that idea. I mean, why be a little happier if you can be 10 times happier? Absolutely. Loved it. But, but then I have to say I stopped and then I said, damn, if we can be 10 times happier, how unhappy are we now? I mean, like we seem to have a real issue. And I know your work is all about helping people who are going through mental health issues and, you know, through pandemics and lockdowns and so on. What's going on? Are we really becoming that unhappy? Yeah, it's a good question. And it was actually the motivation for the book actually happened. It's it, it's ironic, actually, that you talk about God. Wouldn't we all like to be a little bit happier? I had done my first book, which was 10 to Zen. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm coming to that. I will absolutely come to that. Yeah. yeah. So that was about yeah. creating the program to just help people slow down. As a therapist, obviously, you see all walks of life. Yeah. And I'm always curious about where I see people struggle. So, you know, you can obviously be guided by psychology models, but I think there's nothing more helpful than your own experience of when, you, when you're surrounded by humans suffering a lot and you then start to see patterns forming it. And, you know, that's kind of what informs my work. So for 10 Times Happier, we were having a conversation about the book and what it might look like. And what I wanted to do was to create a book, really, which was about where I see people get in the way of their own happiness. And somebody in the brainstorm said, good, you know, would not be a great thing if someone could be a little bit happier? And I said, well, you know, I think most people can be a lot more happier. They can be 10 times happier. And then suddenly the, the title landed. We thought that's the title. Yeah. And immediately it felt, yeah. You know, when you have these moments more when suddenly something feels right intuitively in the you know in the kind of core in your gut you feel no that's the title for this book so that's kind of where it came from really and what i talk about in the book is i talk about the 10 areas where i see people struggle most in terms of how they block and how they get in the way of their own happiness because what i see a lot is people will come to therapy and they will give you a list of reasons why they're struggling and they will talk about all of life all of the things that happen, the terrible things that happen. I know obviously you've experienced your own tragic loss. So we know the impact of life and we know how people can struggle. But the one thing people don't often talk about at the beginning is their part in their suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what fascinated me. So I thought, look, you know, as a therapist or anyone who claims to be anyone who works in the self-help arena, none of us can really you know, fundamentally change someone's life. We can't, we cannot move in and change their circumstances. But I think what we can try to do is change how someone sees the world, how they view themselves and how they can take responsibility for making changes in their life and moving forward. And that's what excites me really is when people find that power within them to break free of patterns and move forward. That for me is liberation. And that for me is what happiness is about. Absolutely. I mean, when I wrote Soul for Happy, my book the first time, 
I attempted to do what you're doing. And I have to tell you, I was pushed back really, really strongly. The idea of trying to tell people you're totally responsible for your happiness. Of course, you know, you're not responsible for the events that come in your life. And sometimes life is harsh. As a matter of fact, almost always for each and every one of us, life will sometimes be harsh, right? But it's your responsibility. And when I wrote Solve for Happy, I, I wrote it a bit like we write software. So I put it out there as a beta version and I asked people to rate it. And if I remember correctly, 8% of all readers dropped out at page 11. And on page 11, I told them happiness was a choice. It's something that's within your hands. It's something that you can do. And they were like, what? What are you talking about? I'm not reading this book. This book is obviously deluded. Now you're saying we constantly stand in our own way of happiness. It's not just what life gives us. It's our own behavior, our own refusal to take charge, is it? I think it's a number of things, really. But I think in my experience over the years as a therapist, when people come and they've experienced all sorts of awfulness in their life, of course, you're empathic and compassionate and, and you do your best to be alongside somebody in that suffering. Mm -hmm. But there comes a point in everyone's journey where there has to be some internal decision yeah. about moving through or moving forward. And sometimes that's really, really painful to help someone say, look, we cannot change what's happened. There is nothing we can do that will change the circumstances of what's been. But actually the one thing we can work on and change is how you see things yeah, and how you would like your future to be. And I can't make that happen. I can't change that for you. But if you're willing to be kind of flexible and open to that as a possibility and realize that there's work to be done, then I believe we can move forward. And I think, you know, obviously it might sound harsh because it's e as human beings more, I think it's easier when we're struggling. It's much, much easier to put blame out it's because that happened. It's because he did that. It's because she did that. It's because I failed, whatever the context might be. But I believe fundamentally that when we do that, then we're powerless. We become stuck. And for me, it's about how you help people become unstuck. And when they discover that, then there's great freedom. And I suppose, look, my experience is quite mixed in a way. My career has been split into two. So half of it was in health and then half in psychology. So when I worked in the kind of the medical background that I have, most of it was spent working with people who were terminally ill. So, you know, at least 10 years of my career, I spent working with people who were dying. Oh my God, that's hard. So that was my work for 10 years, day in and day out. I would be working with people who were facing the end of their life and I'd be working with their families. And I suppose really that was a massive wake up call for me around the fragility of life and the importance of responsibility and the importance of making the most of these moments and opportunities and not wasting them. That really, I mean, of, of everything that I gained from that experience, it was about how we have to take responsibility because I would watch people in the most terrible circumstances, but they were still hopeful. Oh, I love that. And they were still happy and they were still able to see meaning and value in life. And of course I would be, you know, I'm thinking of this young guy I worked with, he was like 22 and he had, hideous pancreatic cancer he had three months to live i was working very closely with this young guy and you know he would be talking about his life and making the best of every millisecond he had and of course i was driving home from work and i'm thinking about changing my mortgage and my car needed mm. oh should i get a new bank account and my dog you know all of the life stuff that we and i was stressed and i was bothered by it and i remember driving home from work one day and feeling you know, when you fundamentally have a moment and you think, I've got this all wrong. Yeah. My energy, my attention, my focus is in the wrong places. I'm working with these people who have limited time and some of them are embracing and grabbing every moment, hopefully. And if they can do that, then I'm sure I can do that or I can attempt to do that. And I suppose that really influences my work. Yeah. The mathematical definition of limited, by the way, it's not infinite, which basically is... Every one of us has limited time. It's this young man, very wise young man, you know, he's 22 and he has three months, that's limited time. If you're 75 and you have five years, that's limited time. If you're 52 and you have 18 years, that's still limited time, right? And I think the idea is that 
we never really know how limited it is because, you know, in my story, losing Ali, you know, we never expected Ali to leave. And I think most of the time with COVID-19 and all of the loved ones that we lost, we never really expected them to leave. And so it's always limited. And it's so interesting that we get stuck wasting that limited, precious, precious time. Have you ever had a conversation with any of those dying saying, you know, sort of asking what would you have changed about your life? I, I found those to be quite inspiring, actually. I mean, the, these were conversations. I mean, it was really interesting. I would never directly have that conversation because at that point in my career, I wasn't planning to write books and do what I, you know, it wasn't on my radar. This all happened Coincidentally, it's probably not the right word, but it wasn't part of my plan. It just evolved and the opportunities came and suddenly I was able to capture all of my experiences together. So I would never really ask someone, oh, what have you learned or what would you do differently? But interestingly, particularly when what I discovered in my work with people were dying, particularly if you're working in a hospital or a hospice, you know, often conversations would happen at three o'clock in the morning with a cup of tea, <laughs> you know, when you were just sat with a person and they couldn't sleep. And often people would volunteer information. And they would talk about their life and what mattered and what was important to them. And I remember over the years, really, really starting to formulate. I never really hear people talk about their work. Yeah. I never hear people talk about money. I never hear people talk about status. I do hear people talking about holidays, loved ones, the things that matter to them. And that really, really struck me. And I do remember one particular conversation where this guy was probably in his 50s at the time. and I'd been looking after him for a few months and um, he was deteriorating quite slowly and it was agonizing for him. He was really struggling psychologically and physically. And I remember him saying to me once in a conversation, again, it comes back to this theme about time. And I was younger at the time. And he said to me, you know, you're young. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your life. He said, we all think we're invincible. We all think these moments are never going to happen. Get out there, live fully. You know, and I always, always remember walking away that day and think, God, I've got to remember this. So I think, you know, when you talk about that line of work, people automatically think, oh my God, that must have been tough. That must have been awful. That must have been difficult. Actually, it wasn't. I mean, it was a privilege, mm. you know, to be part of those, to be part of those stories every day and to have people trust you with their story. And of course, at that time, you do your job, you get up, you go to work, you do what you have to do, you do what you're trained to do. But interestingly, it was in that work that I suddenly discovered, because it was all medical, so it was medications and drugs and diagnosis and prognosis. And at that stage, you know, we had some training on how to have conversations, but I suddenly realized that I was completely out of my depth when it came to psychological distress. You know, I didn't have the skills, I didn't have the training. And that's what motivated me then to go off and retrain as a psychotherapist. So my career changed direction completely. But of course, then when it came to the books, I was able to capture not only my experience in psychology, but I was able to capture all of those years of working with people and include that in my work. And of course, also tell my own story because, you know, my my life hasn't been perfect. I've made mistakes along the way. My upbringing was challenging. You know, I grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles and there was a lot of trauma and anxiety. I'm a gay guy. I really struggle with coming out because of Catholicism and shame and all of that sort of stuff. And I really felt when I sat down to write the books that I just don't want to write these books as a professional. I want to write them as a human being fundamentally and be truthful about struggle and vulnerability because I think you know, sometimes, and I'm sure you would agree with me, when you put yourself out there with your work, you just have to be prepared to tell your own story and to share your own vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. And it's true. hard. Sometimes that's really hard and it's quite exposing. So what I try to do is I just try and capture all of that, you know, my own experience, what I learned from people who were dying and what I've learned as a psychotherapist about, you know, the brain and psychological processing and how we function you know my, my work is fundamentally about tying that all together and think helping people see whatever is going on in your life today it can probably be better and easier than it is regardless of what it is and i think that's hugely yeah. important oh that's a mega statement that is a mega statement and i believe it fully by the way i think we should repeat it to our listeners whatever is going in your life today it can be better and probably it can be better immediately if you change the way you're looking at it right and the first step is to take charge and say yeah i may not be able to fix it 
but I can make it slightly better. And slightly better is better than what it is today. It's a, it's a great place to be. Absolutely. And if you can go up a few notches and that's even better again. And I think it's, you know, here's the thing, Mo, I think we all get caught up in the fact that when we have a tough time in life, when we have difficult emotions or we're sad or we're lonely or fearful, we're so fixated on attachment to positive emotions, like they're the only emotions that matter. Whereas actually all of these other emotions, they, they have value, they have worth. You know, they have meaning. If you allow emotions to teach you, I fundamentally believe that if you can use all of it as a teaching and a learning, then even the tough days can be useful because the emotions teaching you something. If you allow yourself to go beyond the feeling and get beneath what the lesson might be, there's something really valuable there. And I think, you know, you know, grief, you describe grief beautifully in your book. I understand grief in parts of my life. But even in the, the awfulness of grief, there's, there's stuff to be learned. Oh, absolutely. There is so much beauty to be found as well. I mean, I, I'll tell you very openly, I never really, really internalized and fully, fully felt how much love I had for Ali until the, he left, right? I mean, the, the truth is, of course, I knew how much I loved him, but I couldn't imagine it was that much. And, and the day he left, you start to go like, oh my God, I love that being. You know, I really, really do. I will have to go back a bit here and ask you, because growing up in Northern Ireland and being gay are two very different stressors. One of them is from outside you. It's entirely, you know, the world collapsing and it's, you know, sort of a war and everyone's fighting and there are traumas and so on. But the other is sort of a perception we put on ourselves, which is, I mean, in all honesty, I, I love to talk about the topic. It's your absolute freaking freedom to do whatever you want with your life, right? But yet we're so conditioned to believe that this is something that you should hold, you know, hide and, and not tell the world and feel awkward about. How do you distinguish between those, the external triggers that hit us and the stuff that actually is not even true at all, generated from within us in a thought, but is in reality not even a reason to be concerned? Yeah, I think for me, I always talk very openly about sexuality. I feel I have to. And the reason I talk about it openly Absolutely. is because for me, it was where I learned about shame. And I think many people carry shame around, but they don't know what it is or they're not quite sure how to name it. But I think a lot of us carry a lot of shame around with us in our lives. And of course, it plays out in so many different ways and it just gets masqueraded or it gets placed into a diagnostic box. But often shame gets missed. And I think, well, if you miss that, then you miss the core epicenter of what you need to be dealing with. So for me, it was a sense ultimately about Catholicism, being gay, growing up in Northern Ireland, it was not the done thing. It was it was sinful, it was dirty, it was wrong. And fundamentally, the core message the entire time in my formative years was that there's something defaulted about this. This is wrong. It's sinful. It is not the way of God. All of those messages were reinforced the entire time, right up until I was probably in my early 20s, that's what I was saturated with. And interestingly, I spent three years in a monastery when I was 19. I, I, I grew up very strong Catholic and I spent three years in a monastery, which felt like the right decision at the time. But of course, when I was there, I suddenly realized I'm going to have to come out at some point. And when I came out, my first therapist, ironically, I mean, there's a bit of a weird story here. So I, I hadn't really told anyone I was going to come out, and but I knew I had to talk about it. And someone I know very well, a good friend of mine said, why don't you go and talk to your therapist? And I remember at the time thinking, I don't need a therapist. There's nothing wrong with me. But I knew there was stuff I needed to talk about. And ironically, my first therapist turned out to be a Catholic nun. So when I got there, the person, oh, wow. they'd give me the person's name. Her name was Kathleen. And when I got there, I wasn't expecting a nun. I just thought the lady's name was Kathleen. And when I got there, there was a giveaway when I got there. And I think, oh, this is a convent. Why am I, why am I at a convent? <laughs> and I thought, how am I going to get around this? I'm, I'm about to start talking about being gay to a, a Catholic nun. This isn't going to work out very well. <laughs> Not very well, no. It's, yeah, but, but you know, do you talk about equations a lot? That equation should have yeah, didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that go? And, you know, it was brilliant. It was probably one of the most uplifting experiences of my life, actually. And I think actually cathartically, it was she was the right fit for me because she was a representative of the church and she was able to see beyond the, 
the dogma and the stigma and the judgment and accept me as a human being. Of course. Without any of that. And of course, in turn, that helped me accept who I was and work through all of that. And of course, she then taught me about shame. And she said, you do realize that you're you're ashamed of who you are. So, of course, at that time, I love talking about we all have a rehearsed narrative of who we are. So we all tell a story about who we are. So at that point in my early 20s, I thought I was pretty integrated and pretty sorted and pretty together. <laughs> and then you rock up to therapy and you think, oh, my God, I'm just absolutely <laughs> <laughs> I'm drenched in all of this shame and all of these values and all of this trying to please people and fit in and not be found out and all of this stuff that I didn't know about myself at that time. And I thought, so, you know, there I was thinking I was pretty together. And then suddenly within a couple of sessions, I was thinking, okay, there's a bit of work to be done here. <laughs> that, of course, influences me. It influences my work and it influences my passion for the work I do. Because I think I think in life when you've walked the walk in some way and when you understand it. Totally, emotion, totally, totally. When someone's in a room, of course, you never know exactly what someone's feeling, but you get a sense of the awfulness, yeah. you get a sense of the pain. So that helps you lean in a bit closer. Yeah. One of my favorite, favorite books of all time, probably my favorite book ever, is a book called 40 Rules of Love by uh, Elif Shafak. Is a very well-known Turkish author. And she sort of rewrites the story of Rumi, the Sufi mystic, and Shams, who really was the friend that got him to change direction. And I wept like a baby. I was reading it on a long flight, I think Dubai to San Francisco. And I like to the point that the hostesses would come to me and say, is everything okay? Right? And I was weeping because the whole idea of what Shams was teaching Rumi was, can you stop being the scholar? Can you stop being up on the pedestal teaching all of us and actually go, go to the pub, go to the poor places, go to a brothel and see how people are actually living, right? The only way you can teach anyone anything is if you've lived it, if you've actually gone through it. And it's such a beautiful message. Uh, you know, I will say openly from all my friends, and I hope now you're one of my new friends because I want really, I really want you to be one of my new friends. Of all of my friends who really are enlightened, they've gone through horrible, horrible crap through their life, right? It's the only way. It's the only way. I think it is. And the older I get, I'm, I'm beginning to realize that, you know, because at, at the time you think, God, this is tough. The whole coming out thing was difficult for me. But actually growing up in Northern Ireland was was tough as well because it, it was fear driven. My, my entire formative years were influenced by fear, fear of coming out, fear of being found out, fear of going out because there was violence and bombs everywhere. There were losses within my own family. So the entire environment was driven by fear. So suddenly in my early 20s, I realized that I had been really programmed, I'd been hardwired to be fearful. Mm. And I'd never realized that. And it was only when I left Ireland and moved to London, and suddenly I would notice a, a car would backfire and I would just automatically jump. <laughs> yeah. My partner would still laugh to this day and mm -hmm. say, why do you jump? A loud noise will suddenly startle me because I was hardwired to be on guard for fear. But, you know, the, the other side of the coin is, is all of this stuff, every single experience I think we have as a human being, we have two choices, what we can do with it. We can, we can become paralyzed and we can become victimized by the experience. Mm -hmm. and we can lie down and be defeated by that, or we can make a decision. And this is where I talk about taking responsibility. Okay, what can I salvage from this that will not only enrich my life, but potentially help enrich someone else's life? And I guess that's yeah. what I try to do with most of my experience. Beautiful. What can I do with this? So I, not only changes me, but I can hopefully hand it over to someone and say, no, 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 you can't do this. No, you don't need to be ashamed. No, it's okay to be frightened. And I understand why you're frightened, but this, this is how we can work through this. So I think fundamentally, I'm speaking this out loud. I hadn't really thought it this way before, but I think ultimately that's why we're all here in some ways. We're all just passing <laughs> on what we know. It's the collective learning of all of us, I think, that this is all about. So talk about fear for a second. So this is one of the areas where we get ourselves stuck. So fear is a big one. And the opposite of fear, I heard you once say, is hope, right? It's, it's the idea of taking everything that you're afraid of and reframe it 
in a way that's actually optimistic. Tell me a bit about that. I mean, I think hope is one of those, con- you know, it's conceptual, isn't it? And I think it's often minimized and it's not used enough. And my interest in hope comes from my time in palliative care, working with people who were terminally ill, because a lot of the research in the world of palliative care talks about the importance of hope. So above everything, there's a lot of work saying a hopeful outlook and a hopeful perspective, even as you're facing death can be an incredibly useful thing. And of course, when you start to expand and look at it in a deeper way, chemically, when we're hopeful in our outlook, and by that I don't mean, you know, hopefully you get a sense. For me, it's not about fairy dust or sugarcoating life or pretending that everything's fine. That's not how I work. But it's about saying, okay, where can we find hope in this moment? Because chemically, when we're hopeful, we produce more endorphins, more encephalins, the chemicals that are going to help us feel better. So you get an immediate chemical change, which is useful, um, not only for the for your physical body, but for your mental state. But outside of that, there, when when you're able to adopt a hopeful perspective, what it helps you do is it helps you break from the here and now. So that that sense of being stuck, that knowing that there is another, there is an over the hill, there is a different moment, there is a new horizon just helps people become unstuck. And I talk about that a lot because when we're fearful, we're paralyzed. Yeah, yeah. Whereas actually when we're hopeful, then actually we can't stay in that paralyzed state. We have to then find a way of looking beyond. And I remember years and years ago, I'm trained in different models of psychotherapy and I trained in a particular model called interpersonal psychotherapy, which is all about communication and how we communicate with each other. And I remember one of the people teaching me that modality at the time said, we were talking about working with people who were really severely depressed and had lost a lot of hope. And I remember one of my tutors said to me, remember that when you're working with somebody who is really struggling with being hopeful, the one gift you can give them is you can let them know that you're happy to hold on to the hope for now. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. When you're ready, bit by bit, what you'll do is you'll hand it over to them, but only when they're ready. It won't be forced upon them. They won't be made to take it. They won't be shamed into feeling happy or feeling that they have to be better than they are at the moment. But what you will do is you will reassure them that you've got it <laughs> and that you know it's there and bit by bit you'll give it to them. And for me, I remember hearing that and thinking, oh my God, that's everything. Yeah. And, and I use this in clinical practice all the time, really effectively actually, because, because if somebody is feeling hopeless, you've given them something. You've, give, you've sowed a tiny seed, which is like, okay, well, this guy seems to think there might be hope and that might be enough for today. Mm. So you're one step forward from where you were. You do that by simply saying, well, no, I actually see it slightly differently. I think there is hope in A, B, and C, or this can happen or whatever. So you basically position it as I'm not pushing you to adopt that position. I'm just saying that this is my perspective of it, right? I think it's allowing people and it's always about never robbing somebody of their experience. If someone arrives and they're hopeless and they're sad and or they're stuck, that's where they're at. As a therapist, what I would never want to do is force someone out of that position. You've got to, you know, that you, you work with what you've got. Mm. But what you're saying to someone is, I can see where you're at and I can hear how difficult this is. However, I do believe that this is not a permanent state. I know you're not feeling that today, and I know you may not feel this tomorrow, but I don't believe this is a permanent state. And and sometimes I'll quote an example of other people I've worked with and share that with people. And then if they leave, even with a fraction of hope, then I've done my job. I, I'm just automatically thinking more of a guy years ago I worked with. And I remember he was so unwell. I remember his wife. I was working in the NHS at the time. I worked in the NHS for a long time and was a clinical lead in my last job. And I remember this guy coming and his wife brought him to the door of my office and he came in and he had lost his business. He had lost his family. He had got himself into a lot of debt and and overnight his world fell apart. He'd got into a really bad situation, started off drinking too much. Then he became depressed and then suddenly he fell into quite a deep clinical depression. And I remember he sat down in the chair and the minute his wife left, he said, by the way, he said, I don't want to be here. I've got no time for therapists. I don't want to hear any bullshit. Just let's get through this next hour. I won't be coming back after today, just so you're clear where we stand. But at least I've shown up and it will keep my wife happy that I've done it. That's how he started off. And I thought, okay, well, this is going to be a challenge, but you know, I like a challenge. And we started to talk and 
you know, he was resistant and he was argumentative and he did everything to resist the process. And as we came to the end of the session, I had said to him, you know, I could feel it, you know, as a therapist often, and I'm sure you get this more when you're interacting with people. Sometimes you can feel someone's experience when you're working with them. You know, you feel feel the sadness. And I'd said to him towards the end, I said, I know things have been tough for you. And I said, look, if I'm feeling some of the sadness that I think you're feeling, I can't imagine how unbearable this must feel at the minute. And I wonder if you'd even be open to the fact that I can help you and this could get a little easier than it is today. And then he said, well, you know my views at the beginning. And I said, well, okay, I'll tell you what, why don't we strike a deal? I said, don't come and see me next week. I said, but how about in a fortnight, if you think about what I've just said, that I'll keep the slot open and if you want to come back, the door's open. So two weeks later, I deliberately give him the gap for two weeks so that he could just think this through. And two weeks later, he came back. And his wife wasn't with him this time. She didn't come to the door. She was around, but she didn't take him to the door. And he came in and he sat down. And I remember he just, first words he said, okay, where do we start? And then he cried. Oh, my God. You know, and he yeah. cried for 15, 20 minutes. He just, you know, just this cathartic yeah. explosion of emotion. And we sat there and I didn't do anything. I didn't run. I didn't try and fix it. I didn't try and stop it. We just let that be. And that was the beginning of something powerful for him, you know, just to, to transform and turn that around and stuff. So I think these are the moments when it would be easy to discount hope and say, okay, this, this case is too difficult. The guy doesn't want help. I can't do anything about it and turn the guy away. But actually it was my willingness, I suppose, to sit with hope. Yeah. That then enables something powerful. Is therapy the only answer, Owen? I mean, so people listening to us right now, I'm sure every human being, everyone I know is struggling with something. Yeah, of course. I actually heard you say this once and it opened my mind completely because, you know, that statistic of one in every four people is depressed. And you, you so courageously say, no, 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 hold on. Four of every four people have some kind of a mental health challenge. And I think that's a very, very strong statement, right? But the question is, so how do we do this? Let's say someone today lost their job, you know, in COVID and lockdowns and so on. What would they do on their own? Or, I mean, not everyone has access to a therapist, even though it would be amazing. What would they do? What would you advise that they do to get that hope? It's a great question. I, I think that what I'd said was that, you know, we're often quoted one in four people have a mental health issue or challenge or disorder, whatever you want to call it. I don't like the word disorder, but we hear it bandied around a lot. My argument is four and four people have mental health because you have a brain in your head and the brain will produce all sorts of reactions and emotions. And Absolutely. And that means that we're never in a steady state. We're a fluid state. And that will mean some days we may be more anxious than normal. Some days we might feel a bit more flat or demotivated. So that means we're all constantly weaving in and out of these states. And for some people, it might feel like a tidal wave of anxiety comes or for somebody else, it might be a tidal wave of depression. So we're all navigating emotions and our brain responses all of the time. So we can't just say one in four people struggle. No, we all struggle. And if we're not struggling today, it doesn't mean that at some point down the line, we might struggle or we might have an adversity or something difficult. So I think we need to broaden the conversations and we need to open it up. And I agree, not everyone has access to therapy, but I think Beginning conversations, for me, I think one of the most powerful things anyone can do if they are struggling is just have a conversation with someone, someone that you trust, someone that you think will be able to hear you and understand you, someone that you just know will be alongside you. That conversation in itself can just be the beginning of something powerful because when we don't talk, we don't process. And when we don't process, we become stuck. And when we become stuck, we suddenly can become depressed and very, very anxious. So I think even the beginnings of a conversation, having the courage to admit to someone, look, I'm struggling, I'm vulnerable, I'm not finding this easy, is one of the most powerful steps forward. And then I think outside of that, it's about, okay, what are one or two small changes that you can make today that make this feel more manageable? And that just might be, okay, I'm going for a walk today. Or I'm going to go for a run, or I'm just going to pick up the phone and call someone today. That can be enough to start with. But I think above everything, if I was to say, okay, well, look, imagine we lived in a world where we didn't have therapists or we didn't have professional support. 
I think the one ingredient that we all miss, every one of us are guilty of this year, is how we treat ourselves and how we talk to ourselves. Because most people, and in your book you talk about Becky Brian, <laughs> yeah. which I loved, but people really do crucify themselves in terms of how they treat themselves, oh, yeah. how they talk to themselves. And I think even that action of if you can recognize how tough and how harsh you're being on yourself, and you can replace that with something a bit kinder, a bit more compassionate, and start being a bit more reasonable with yourself, then I think that in itself, in the absence of therapy, is one of the kind of breakthrough moments to recovery. Yeah. So if you didn't have a therapist, then that's, you know, for me, I would say. I love the idea of what can I do to make it more manageable? You're not trying to solve the problem, right? You're simply trying to say, look, it is 10 steps deep now. Can I make it eight steps deep, right? Anything that I can do today that makes it a little better is something I should do today to make it a little better. And that tendency, you know, propensity for action actually not only, you know, reduces your anxiety or your depression or your sadness a little bit, but it also makes the world slightly better. So hopefully also reduces the reason for you to be anxious by taking those steps, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also as well as about not shaming people. And this is going to sound ironic. I mean, one of my books is about happiness, but it's not about shaming people into to being happy because, you know, we all view happiness as this kind of nirvana state of feeling euphoric and life is beautiful and perfect and everything's together. Yeah. None of us get there. We're, we're all evolving and changing all of the time. There isn't a perfect state to get to. It's all evolving all of the time. So for me, probably similar to some of your views, happiness really is, I mean, can you be okay with life as it is, not how you exactly. want it to be? Exactly. 100%. Yeah. You know, that's where the conflict comes from. If you resist the, the natural flow and order of life, then of course you're going to be tied up. And you're going to feel constricted because you're going against the natural order. So happiness can be, okay, I'm going to manage life as it is today, not how I want it to be. And I think that can be revolutionary. I know in my own life when I discovered that, it was yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah, It's really quite interesting because most of the time we are either stuck in the past or comparing to others. I think the big challenge is we don't accept life as as it is, mostly because we're looking at others and saying, oh, but their life is better. We don't know that, do we? Yeah, well, it's a whole comparison thing. One of, one of the chapters in 10 Times Happier, I talk about comparison is a thief of joy. You know, it's one of the chapters and it's this endless belief that other people are happier or they're doing better or they have more success. And of course, the moment you start doing that, suddenly you rob yourself of something really, really important. Is that your dog in the background? Let me pause for a second, my dog. <laughs> no, 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 let's not pause. Bring him over. I think everyone will love him. I mean, I will bring him over. Oh my God, what a cute little creature. Hello. <laughs> this is Will. Hey, Will. <laughs> Come talk to us. What's making you unhappy, Will? <laughs> it's because I'm talking to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> All talking right. about comparisons. Okay. He, um, exactly. <laughs> He doesn't like it when someone else gets more attention than he does. He's a pup. He's coming up to six months old. So cute. Oh, my God. He likes a lot of affection and he likes cuddles and he likes to be where you are. Who doesn't? But he also yeah. likes, to be, he likes to be part of things. <laughs> let's bring him over. I think he's happy now. Let's, let's keep going then. He's happy now. He may have a few contributions, so let's see. We're happy. We're happy with that. I normally think that podcasts that have more than one guest are actually more interactive and interesting, even though <laughs> our conversation has been amazing. But now that Will is part of this. I did a TV thing in, in London a few weeks ago, and I was talking about the book and I was talking about various other mental health things. And as I was talking to the producers before the show, we just got him and there was a vet on the program on the same day. And they yeah. said, oh, God, do you want to ask our vet a few questions about your pup? So he featured on the TV program. <laughs> He's a star already. <laughs> yeah, he got, he got a little mention on TV. So he got, he got his moment in the limelight. This is the reason why he wanted to be in front of the camera in the Zoom, contributing exactly. to the topic of happiness. That's what, yeah. He's seen an opportunity and he's grabbed it. <laughs> yeah. Do you believe in past lives? I mean, he could have been a sage in some form before, right? 
Who knows? I'll tell you the really interesting thing about this dog is so we had a dog and she died last year and uh, we had a same breed. He's a West Highland Terrier and our old dog, she died November last year and she was a West Highland Terrier. And we had such a great time with her that um, we waited a few months, but let's do it again. So I just kind of think yeah. our love of the old dog really it's made us choose. This yeah. little fella, you know, which is why we went from. But talking about the cabin, as we were doing, we're talking about, you know, having quiet spaces and being away and stuff. This kind of place we're living at the moment, which, you know, is split between London and here. The reason we ended up here was a conversation with a dog walker. And my old dog led to this conversation about, you know, having a quieter life and having some more quiet to go to. And it was a dog that got me an introduction to this person who had this cabin that was available to come and stay in. And that wouldn't have happened unless the dog wouldn't have been around. Yeah. Did you see the documentary? There is a documentary on Netflix, one of my favorite documentaries of, uh, of all time, actually. It's called The Biggest Little Farm. And you have to see, it's incredible, really. It's about this couple that leaves the city because their dog is very noisy and the neighbors are very unhappy and they can't leave the dog. So they take the dog to a farm and they start this sort of sustainable farming practice and such a beautiful story. So uh, I'm glad that Will made you make that decision. Maybe I should get yeah, myself yeah, a pup. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He brings a lot of energy. And I think, you know, dogs are great, aren't they, for, you know, mindfulness and stuff. You know, they, you know, what they're able to do, you know, they stop when they need to. Exactly. They, they, yeah. they see over the moment, you know, they don't judge, you know, all the things that we preach and talk about. It's just like, no, actually the dogs live this, don't they? So it's very instinctive. Yeah, they're yeah. instinctive. So they're a great reminder of all the values that we try to live by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking about our brains crucifying us, torturing us. And comparison, you were saying comparison is the killer of joy. We live in a world today where comparison is a way of life, right? I mean, you, you go to any social media site and all you get is butts that look better than yours. And, you know, uh, people that seem to have more money than you do and people that have somehow, despite lockdown, I actually never got that one. But despite lockdown, people seem to continue to have uh, pictures from all over the world with, you know, open beaches behind them and parties and so on. And you wonder, like, how can that be true? How did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Comparison is truly a killer, isn't it? I think it can be because I think, you know, for anybody listening today, I think what I'd say is just notice what happens to your mood when you compare your life to someone else's. And I think for most people, the response will be it has a negative detrimental impact on the mood because all of the forums out there, social media, Instagram, all of that stuff, you know, it's all designed to deliver the kind of the favorable, the, the glossy, the optimistic versions of people's lives. We rarely see stuff where people show their vulnerability. We just don't. So I think most people day to day are walking around with stuff going on inside them, not feeling good enough, feeling worried, feeling a bit flat, feeling a bit lost, demotivated. And of course, you then go on to social media and it appears that everyone else is having a great time. <laughs> yeah. So how can that not impact on your day? How can that not impact on your mood? Now, the reality is what you're seeing very often isn't real because all someone's doing is giving a, a snapshot version of their life. May not necessarily even be a true version and just, just may be what they Most created. often it's not, yeah. So actually what you're doing is you're comparing yourself sometimes to an illusion. Yeah. And you're allowing that to then impact on your mood and your day. And I think, again, it's a coming back to that thing about responsibility. I mean, I, yeah, I talk about this stuff a lot. I talk about imposter syndrome. I talk about comparison. I know as a human being, sometimes I can go on to social media and, and you look at it for a few minutes and you come off feeling about, God, everyone's, everyone's having a great time. <laughs> I haven't had time to do anything this week and I haven't had any breaks in a while and stuff. And then, and you can then feel that almost internal collapse begin to happen where you notice a dip in your mood or you started to notice any kind of ways of thinking starting to creep in and your self-critic yeah. coming out and stuff. So I've got much better at nipping that in the bud very, very quickly and thinking, no, 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 I don't go there. Yeah, because I'm comparing myself to an illusion. And I think as well, I, I don't know if you've experienced this, you know, you know, writing books and stuff, because it was all not a plan for me. And it just happened. And the book came out and it was incredibly successful. Yeah. And that's great. And, you know, I'm really 
privileged and grateful for all of that there. But of course, inadvertently, you can get pulled into this world where, you know, you start then to compare or people expect more of you or you're, you're asked to do other stuff. And then it's very, very easy to fall into that trap. You then start to think, okay, should I be doing more? Or should I be selling more? <laughs> should my profile be bigger? All of this stuff. And, you, you know, you have to stop looking at that stuff and thinking, okay, no, no, no. It's about, I set out in this journey, particularly with the books, and I genuinely, when the opportunity came, I thought, do you know something? If 10 people pick up my book. That's an amazing, amazing achievement. You've changed the world. I've done, I've done my job. And that was, the, that was the thought. You know, if 10 people read this and it does. You know, I go even further than you. So I, I write almost constantly. I have no idea why, right? And I wrote so far 2.4 books in total on five different subjects. One of them was completed, completed. And I showed it to my agent and he said, fantastic, let's go and take that to publish it. And I was like, no, I wasn't writing it to publish it actually at all. It's not even the idea of if someone reads it or not. I, I believe that if it's supposed to be read, it will be published, but that one didn't feel right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just the joy of actually sitting there and writing. And if you get to that place, it doesn't become a job anymore. I think that's really what I'm trying to say. Right? Oh, no, absolutely. I, I did some work yesterday. I'm working on my third book at the minute. And I, I, I blocked out yesterday afternoon and I worked for a few hours on the third book. And I'd probably been working for a good three hours. And I, I, when I stopped, it felt like I'd done 10 minutes. But interestingly, yeah. I felt really recharged. And what I've noticed is that when you when you escape into the world of writing and sharing experience and passing it on, there's something incredibly cathartic Amazing. and relaxing about it. Whereas yeah. actually, if I compare that to when I have to promote a book or doing talks <laughs> and all of that, it's a completely different experience at all. And of the two, actually, I love the solitude of escaping into a book and writing because it's suddenly there's zero pressure. You know, you can just escape into that. And it, I love the feedback that I get when I'm actually out there talking to people about it. And I sort of always wish that I could get that feedback even before the book was out there. So I, I actually just a couple of days ago, I released the early readers program, I call it for my next book, where I invited, I actually, I apologize to everyone. I got more than 1,200 requests within four hours wow. for people to be early readers. And I could only release it to around 250, I think 200, something like that, uh, because I don't have the bandwidth to actually respond to all of the feedback of, of everyone that will read it. But that's the idea. The idea is to tell people, look, you know, I want you to read it now and give me feedback now so that you can actually help me make it a little bit better when it comes out. I didn't read 10 to Zen, but I love what you did with 10 times happier, but I can't finish our conversation without at least giving us a synopsis. Is there a, a methodic way to slow down? Because this podcast is all about slowing down. 10 to Zen came from, it, 10 to Zen happened almost accidentally. I was given a workshop for the BBC actually in London. I was doing a chat for them and someone afterwards came and said, oh, you should write a book on this. This is really helpful. And basically what I decided to do was that I felt that a lot of meditation and a lot of self-help techniques they're quite elongated. And often in therapy, the one thing people are really short of is time. And I thought, I want to create something that is 10 minutes a day because one, it's time efficient and more likely to be used. And secondly, I want to deliver something that I know practically people will benefit from rather than create something that I know in the real world won't happen for most people because they just won't fit it into their day. So I started to think about how I would use the technique. And as I said earlier, I, I incorporate all my experience in it. But I think one of the mistakes I see all of the time is particularly with managing anxiety and stress is that we try to get people to, to calm down and have a quieter mind. And we try to engage rational thinking to do that. But actually, until you actually quieten and switch off threat mechanisms, then it's really difficult to engage the rational mind. So, you know, if you think of right-sided brain amygdala activation, when we're anxious, we've got highly activated amygdala, which of course will then spark a whole different set of mechanisms. But if someone's in that heightened anxious state, it's very, very difficult for them to use cognitive, rational interventions to bring themselves down because actually prefrontal cortex won't function for them in the way they need it to because the amygdala is activated. So my program was about really, first of all, it's done in a couple of stages, but the first thing in the book is, you know, check in on yourself. 
you need to know how you are. So the first part of the book is the importance of stopping and checking in because you can't do anything unless you are aware of where you're at. And then we have that awareness. You can do something about that. And the techniques then talk initially about using a couple of different models and techniques from cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, which is a trauma model. I use a couple of techniques that help deactivate the amygdala and quieten the brain quickly so that people get from that heightened state to a more level state. Such as what? Oh, I mean, so there's one of the techniques. If I'm processing trauma, so if I'm working with someone who's got PTSD, often before you start trauma treatment, I, I work from a model called EMDR, which I don't know if you've heard of this, Mo, it's um, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And basically we use rapid eye movements when somebody's been through a traumatic life event and that helps prove it. But all the evidence is really clear. We don't know how it works, but we know that it moves trauma memory from the right-hand side of the brain to the left-hand side of the brain. Interesting. It improves um, trauma symptoms. But one of the things that you do when you're working using an EMDR model is that you use grounding techniques beforehand so that someone doesn't get overwhelmed during treatment. And one of the things we use is a technique called bilateral stimulation. And basically, all it is really is you're using tapping. So it's left to right bilateral taps on the upper arm, or you can do it on your thighs. And with that, what you do is you find an image in your mind that for you represents peacefulness and calm. It can be real, it can be imagined. And then with that, you find a word that represents that image. So you've got an image and you've got a word. So then you close your eyes and with the image and the word in mind, you then use bilateral stimulation, which basically what you're doing is you're sending a message to neural pathways that the brain doesn't need to be in threat mode. And what you can do very, very quickly with the three things really, with image, word, and the use of bilateral stimulation, you can send a very quick, rapid message to the brain that it doesn't need to be in threat mechanism. That's so interesting. So it's a fascinating way, particularly, and I've used it hundreds of times in trauma work when somebody has get very very heightened and distressed and you can use it very quickly to get them back to your point of stability so that's kind of one of the techniques that i will use in there and at that point so you know the program it's 10 to zen so it's 10 minutes every day so i teach people in the 10 minutes harder rather than just to just take 10 minutes out not take 10 minutes out but use it well uh-huh. stop check in with yourself quieten your mind, use the techniques. And then I move over to more cognitive strategies then to help people identify, okay, what are your traps? What are the thinking errors that you fall into? What would a different perspective look like? How will you reframe this? So it really is 10 minutes of really stopping people, slowing them down and helping them reframe how they view that's life amazing. and how they circumstance. So that's the premise of the first book. I'm reading this, no doubt. So I'm working with a friend on a book called Stressed, and we're talking about tapping techniques and, you know, a lot of the reframing techniques and so on. So I'll quote you, uh, but I definitely need to read this. That's kind, actually. Thank you. Yeah. You know, when I speak to my, my dear friends who I, who I know have done the work, Owen, I, I find that it's actually not hard to be happy. But somehow our world still remains to be the unhappiest it's ever been. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of it's about how you define happy, if I'm being honest, because if you have a belief that happiness is perfection, rich, success, fame, whatever the context may be, it could be actually that you're in a pretty good place in your life. But if you have sent this benchmark that I can only be happy when I achieve or when I do X, Y, and Z, you're going to be continually in this dissatisfied state. I think it's about actually happiness for me is about i mean more and more and more it's about simplicity it's it's not about the the outcome the achieving where i end up it's about okay today is today is all i've got really you know i'm going to manage today and i'm going to see what comes up today and i'm going to try to be as happy as i can be in that day and that doesn't mean that it's going to be it's not going to be tough or that doesn't mean that it's not going to have difficult moments or times that are challenging but actually what i'm not going to do is i'm not going to qualify them and i'm not going to place conditions on what makes me happy because the minute i start to place conditions on my happiness then i've almost set myself up to feel it's the conditions that create the problem is actually you know mindfulness talks a lot about just being with this moment you know how can you manage the 
the unexpected setback. How can you still be happy in, in the moment where things start to wobble or things are difficult or your dog's trying to jump off the table as you're doing the <laughs> podcast? <laughs> I was talking to someone yesterday about this. I, I did a talk about pre-lockdown, actually, and um, I was doing a talk for this massive corporate organization. And when I got there, the talk was about anxiety, ironically. And when I got there, bizarrely, just before I went on, I just had this wave of jitters about going on stage there were a lot of people there and I think I'd looked out onto the stage and you know through the stage and I'd seen there were a lot of people and I just had this moment of oh my god and, and I could hear this how did I end up here well I could hear this almost surge of yeah. attacks <laughs> yeah attacks all coming out at one time but anyway I knew what it was and it was fine and I went out there and this particular event was quite techy there was a lot of lights and it was beautifully set up and and they were insisting that I, I don't like using PowerPoints. I just like to talk organically. I'm not good with graphs and order and stuff. I just like to be conversational when I deliver a talk, but they insisted that I have some slides and what have you. So anyway, when I got there, we started and they, they did the introduction and stuff and the tech end of things just went completely <laughs> off. Yeah. Green wouldn't work. The lights failed, but you know, all of this stuff went wrong and it was very, very clear that that side of things had fallen apart and this wasn't going to get solved quickly. And I was on stage and there were all these people watching. And I can remember that moment thinking, I have two choices of this here. I can see this as an absolute disaster. My catastrophic mind might jump in telling me this is all gone wrong. I'm going to mess this gig up, blah, blah, blah. You know where it goes, a narrative bills mm-hmm. and bills and bills. And I can remember thinking, right, I've got a choice here. And I remember just stopping and I said, okay, look, I think we'll just forget about the PowerPoint and the technology and the screens. And I said, let me just share before we start, I'm here to talk today about anxiety. Let me just tell you, talk you through what's going on in my mind at the moment. And I just talked through word for word how I was feeling backstage, what it was like to come on, what the technical failure would done, what my anxious mind was telling me could go wrong and what might happen. And, you know, it was probably one of the best talks I've ever given because it just came from raw, pure honesty. And it came from a moment of struggle. Now, this was a setback in life, giving a talk. As we both know, life will throw all sorts of setbacks into your day for every one of us. Stuff won't go to plan. And I think when we go into resistant mode and we start telling ourselves this shouldn't be happening, this wasn't my plan. Why is this happening to me? The moment we fall into that trap, immediately our mood state changes. We can't be happy or contented in those moments because we've started to resist, we've started to fight. So I think even that simple shift of whatever comes today, the plan, the unplanned, whatever comes, I'm just going to opt in to go with this as best as I can do. Just allow the rest to be. And I think that's probably the most simplified but honest answer I can give to happiness really. I actually think it's a fantastic answer. It's not about what life gives you. It's about how you see what life gives you and how you deal with that. This is really it in a nutshell. I mean, in in a way, we waste most of our cycles wishing for things to be different instead of actually enjoying them. I mean, if you're not a PowerPoint guy, You know, the typical actual logical reaction when the technology goes wrong is you should start dancing. It's like, hey, I don't have to use PowerPoints anymore, right? But somehow our mind will say, oh, that's a disaster. No, it's not. There is almost an opportunity in everything. Exactly. And it's a disaster, isn't it? Because we're all trying to fit in, you know, and we're we're all trying to be part of something. And of course, the irony of some of the work I do at the moment is I spent most of my life, certainly up until my late 20s i spent most of my time trying to stay off radar and not be (laughs) and not be found out so there's something for me about being on radar and being (laughs) goes against my dna and my hard wiring so it's an interesting challenge (laughs) it is exactly the way life works trust me it's exactly the way life works it's you know the more you try to stay away from something the, the more life will say okay you know what I'm just going to put you in the exact right place where you learn otherwise. Yeah, Absolutely. And that, that's exactly it, isn't it? This has been wonderful. I really, really am so grateful that we met you. No, I'm buying you coffee next time in London. I would love to see you. When you're over, definitely give me a shout. It would be great to meet up and talk in person. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. I'm reading your book. I'm stealing from it. Okay. <laughs> 
you know my view pass it on if there's something in there that's a value pass it on absolutely yeah thank you so much this was a wonderful conversation i think you've inspired quite a few people ah oh, thank you so much for having me it's been lovely to meet you wonderful conversation i i hope you were left with a few tips today about the idea of taking charge and finding your happiness. I think this is really what it's all about. Owen's depth of work is actually captured in the simplification of how he communicates the message. So I do encourage you to visit his books, 10 Times Happier and 10 to Zen. I, I actually plan to read 10 to Zen for sure. I think it sounds like a very, very interesting concept. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I really loved this conversation. I feel I have a new friend in my life today. And um, if you did, please do spread the word, tell others on social media, or just pick the phone and call your best friend and say, you have to listen to this podcast. I think you would be doing me a big favor by doing this and uh, hopefully doing a favor for others who also can find uh, an inspiration in what we're trying to spread here. So happiness for others. Do uh, rate the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts if you haven't and leave a kind comment that really helps others find that it's not a waste of their time and it's a good podcast for them to invest in. Find me on social media. I'm mo underscore gaudet on Instagram, mo gaudet on LinkedIn, mo.gaudet.official on Facebook and mgaudet on Twitter. And uh, yeah, find your own path to taking your own actions to making things a little bit better today, because it doesn't matter how busy you are. There is always a little bit of time for you to slow down. I love you all for listening and I'll see you next time.